It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi, it's Wes Kosova. We're taking a break this week, so here's an episode you might have missed. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back on Monday with a new Big Take. There are currently about 2 million people incarcerated in the U.S., and at any given time, many of them are defendants who are being held in jail while they await their trial because they can't afford to pay bail. If you're charged with a crime, a judge will often set bail. It's an amount you have to pay to be released until your day in court. It's intended as an insurance policy of sorts to make sure you show up. But often judges set bail so high that defendants aren't able to pay. The result? They have to sit behind bars until trial, a process that can take months or even years. Bloomberg City Lab reporters Sarah Holder and Fola Akinabe report that's one reason the U.S. is the world's leading jailer per capita. The U.S. is actually an outlier in its reliance on that system. In other places, bail bonds are illegal or an issue of last resort. But in the U.S., even though we have this credo and this belief that you're innocent until proven guilty, you can still be sent to jail under that presumption of innocence because you can't pay a certain amount of bail. This is a very American issue, the issue of mass incarceration. Over the past 30 or 40 years, the number of people in jail pre-trial has like quadrupled. This has led to what critics call a two-tiered system of justice. People who are able to pay that bail are able to go home to their families, get back into the community, and await that court hearing, and people without the means cannot. Sarah and Fola have been looking into what happens to defendants in New York City, where thousands of people charged with crimes each year face the choice of paying up or going to jail. And in New York, jail often means Rikers Island. It's the city's largest detention facility, and it's made news in recent years for violent and dangerous conditions. 27 people have died there since the beginning of 2022. Another detainee died today at Rikers Island. The city's correction department says 33-year-old Donnie Ubiera was found unresponsive in his cell. But here's why we're talking about this now. The city is looking to change the system, to make it more fair, and to reduce crowding in jails. New York is trying to redesign its pretrial release program to get more people out of places like Rikers Island. New York has introduced an alternate approach called supervised release, where a judge can say, go home, come back for your court date, but in the meantime, you're going to have regular meetings with social workers and case managers that can help you stay out of jail again and get your life back on track. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, New York tests a real-life get-out-of-jail card.
New York City's supervised release program is run by four nonprofits, each covering part of the city. In Queens, that organization is the Criminal Justice Agency, or CJA. It's the job of the caseworkers at CJA to meet with defendants and try to help them keep their lives on track while they await their court date. Fola and Sarah went to CJA's office in the Kew Gardens neighborhood of Queens to see how the program works. When we visited the Kew Gardens office, it sits across the street from the Queens County uh, Criminal Court, and around 10 or 11 a.m., that's when clients start to roll in, and the office starts buzzing a bit. And on the day we were there, we saw one caseworker having to deal with unscheduled visits and having to do, like, three different sessions when she only had one schedule. And that's because of the office's proximity to the courthouse. It's easy for clients to walk across the street and pop in and do their check-in when they finish a hearing. And Sarah, you met with some of the people who work at the program. We spoke to Joanne de Jesus, who runs CJA's supervised release program. I'm the executive director of supervised release, and I have been working with CJA for 26 years. I'd say, well, our general overall mission is to, you know, it's to help the courts reduce unnecessary pretrial detention, right? Um, and the goal of this program was to help people return to court. I think here specifically, we do that, Queen Supervised Release, by helping people stay in the communities that they live in. So helping them maintain their jobs and their housing situations because when they are detained, they lose the ability to be employed or to stay in their home, um, and those things can go away. And we also spoke to Sasha Tyler Best. I'm a clinical supervisor, and I've been working with CJA for almost four years. I think that we're like, it kind of reminds me of having a guidance counselor, like someone who's there to make sure that you meet deadlines and to support you and help you sign up for the things you want to sign up for. They meet with folks in these interview rooms to talk about how things are going. They talk about mental health struggles. They talk about status of finding new housing. They lend people interview clothes if they're going out for a job interview. They're giving out snack bags with fruit cups and soup. People can get Metro cards so they can actually make it to their court hearings and to their check-ins. They provide a whole lot more services than the supervision. One client we spoke to said his session felt like therapy and it helped him navigate a system that can be brutal and hard to understand. And so the program helped connect him with a job. Yeah, caseworkers do a lot more than just ensure someone returns to court, even though that's their mandate. CJA started the city's first supervised release program in 2009. Today, it serves many more people than it did back then. Partly that's because, at first, the program was only for people accused of nonviolent offenses. But three years ago, those charged with more serious crimes also became eligible. Here's Joanne DeJesus again. She's CJA's executive director. So initially in 2009, we were set up as a nonviolent felony program. So no violent offenses were allowed in the program at all. Since January 1st, 2020, all charges are eligible for the program. So we get what we never used to see before, things like rape charges, murder charges, serious robbery charges, robbery in the first degree, second degree, which are violent felony offenses. We get all of those charges. Right about now, you might be thinking, 
Releasing people charged with nonviolent offenses is one thing. But is it so bad for those accused of committing violent crimes to stay in custody? The answer is complicated. Not all defendants are eligible for the pretrial release program. Judges can deny bail to someone they consider to be a threat to the community, and they would remain in custody until trial. Defendants who are admitted to the program are people a judge has decided are a low risk to others. And Fuller raises another argument that advocates make. It's very easy to point to a program like this and saying, well, they're letting criminals out of jail. That's not true. These people have not been convicted. They still have a right to their day in court. And this program is meant to allow them to wait that period out in the community and at home while they go through the system. Not surprisingly, though, there's been public and political backlash to supervised release. Bail reform has become a boogeyman, just like defund the police had been a boogeyman in 2020 after the killing of George Floyd. You know, a lot of jurisdictions were taking a closer look at their police budgets. Now, the conversation has expanded a bit to look at the entire criminal justice system and questioning the role of bail and jail in our society. New York State is a good example of a place that's really tackling that question head on. Kathy Hochul, a Democrat, is our governor. She's been at the forefront of having to make hard decisions about this issue. Her challenger, Lee Zeldin, a Republican, ran to the right of her um, in the last election cycle and was running ads that painted bail reform, among other police reforms, as this horrible change that would have violent criminals running free in the streets. For good reasons, crime on Kathy Hochul's watch is rising, and liberal policies like cashless bail and not enforcing laws are emboldening criminals. The solution? A new governor. Lee Zeldin's an army veteran and a former prosecutor. And Kathy Hochul rolled back bail reforms and made it easier for judges to set bail for certain crimes because of that political pressure. And these are potent political messages. When you run ads that say that, you know, they're going to be violent criminals in the streets, people really respond to that. You see this pressure on organizations and on systems like the supervised release program and on organizations like CJA because they face this political pressure on one side and then they have also face the pressure of having to do the actual work every day. When we come back, a very busy day in the life of a criminal justice agency caseworker. If you're supposed to meet with your clients, you know, you have 80 clients and you're supposed to meet with them even, you know, 15 to 20 minutes a day. How many can you fit in a day? Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. 
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. New York's criminal justice agency doesn't only see people once they've been released awaiting trial. The city also tasks CJA with assessing defendants before they're arraigned to give the court a better sense of whether a person is a good bet for pretrial release. They look at things like their housing situation, employment history, and any previous warrants. These assessments are important because judges with crowded dockets only have a short time to make a decision about each case. Before someone gets in front of a judge, they've been interviewed by CJA, and CJA does an assessment to gauge the likelihood of this person returning to court. Sarah and I actually sat in on arraignments for hours at the Queens County Criminal Court. We saw this process happen over and over and over again. These hearings take, I feel like some people wouldn't believe, but they take five minutes. Uh, it doesn't matter what the charges are. They're just five minutes, they're cycling through folks. It's then up to the judge to decide what life will look like for the accused before their next court date. If the judge opts to enroll the defendant in a supervised release program, they need to determine just how much supervision that person should get. That's done with a system of tiers and levels. The higher the level, the more supervision. Joanna Jesus from CJA explains it like this. What it is, is it's a combination of factors. It's the charge at arraignment, whether or not it's bail eligible or not, combined with CJA's release assessment score. That is how you land on a tier and a level. However, big caveat is the judges get to override that level. Whenever they see a person in front of them in that arraignment process, if they feel that there is a need for additional support, the judges can mandate, and we then have to follow whatever the judicial mandate is. People at the lowest level of supervision might only have to check in with a caseworker once a month. Those at the highest level may have to see them every week, which can keep caseworkers very busy. When caseloads are this high, we have case managers at the lower level that have 80 clients. Sometimes we're kicking people out of the office at night sometimes. People are frustrated sometimes because it's a lot. And if you think about having 80 clients in a seven-hour workday times five days a week, that's 35 hours a week. And if you're supposed to meet with your clients, you know, you have 80 clients and you're supposed to meet with them even, you know, 15 to 20 minutes a day. How many can you fit in a day? Often these check-ins are quick and routine, but sometimes the caseworkers have to help people sort out bigger problems in their lives. Even with rising caseloads, the CJA caseworkers take on as many people as the courts send their way. That's because they know what the alternative would look like for many of these defendants without supervised release. They would be in jail and likely Rikers Island. Here's Bloomberg's Sarah Holder again. It's rough. The caseworkers really care about the work that they're doing, and they know that every client they see is a client that's not in Rikers. And so they believe that having more clients is a worthy cause, but it's hard to manage all the people and to really give them the time that they need. 
to set them up for success. I just know that we can't close our doors, right? It's not like we say, oh, we're full, like we, we can't close our doors. And the more the judges believe in what we can do and sort of like linking people up, the more they will release people to us. When we come back, New York City puts more money into the pre-trial release program. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Now that CJA and the other nonprofits in the city have been doing this work for more than a decade, here's the big question. Is this growing pretrial release program working out? Is it a success? And if so, how do they measure it? Caseworkers at CJA have told us that they can really see the progress that specific clients are making. Um, they can get a lot out of the program if they want to. Sasha talked us through an experience with a client. One of my clients has been making a lot of progress, actually. He's able to take the resources that we give him and sign up for one of the construction programs, which is great. And he came in and he was like, I don't have time because I'm going to my orientation. So that was a good moment. Whereas the time that I met him before that, he was kind of like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I need a new job. And he's like, I don't know, how do I do this? And so it was just like empowering him to take these resources. And I, I love that he's doing it because he's doing it on his own with information that we've given him. Joanne DeJesus from CJA says her idea of success has changed as the program itself has evolved. Initially, we used to talk about sort of success, like how many people were having their cases disposed in a successful way, right? Like there was a, a plea down. So you came into the program with a felony and you pled down to a misdemeanor or a misdemeanor and you pled down to a violation. So I would consider that a success because you've been in the program, the court's aware that you're participating and now your attorney is able to negotiate a better plea for you. I think also when clients are not recidivating, that's a measure of success. I think the number of times we're able to get somebody into housing or a job um, when they came to us and they haven't had a job or even benefits, right? 
We really try to be a source of like information and knowledge and get them to where they need to be because they have to make their own choices. Ultimately, when we're not in the picture anymore, when they're not working with us, they have to be able to like figure out where to go for information or how to make that information work for them. But at some point, people have to feel empowered to like navigate systems. I think that that goes a long way. I think people are afraid to ask for help sometimes and a lot of them don't even have the core support. So being able to like tell them it's okay to like seek out the support you need is okay. And Bloomberg's Fola Akinabe points to another way to assess how the program is doing. He told us about some data that may answer critics who say it's letting dangerous people go free. So if you take a look at the numbers, most people are returning to court. And of those folks, just 10% are rearrested while they're out on supervised release. And fewer than 2% of those folks are rearrested for violent felony offenses. At the same time, you can see that all the actors in the criminal justice system seem to trust the program. Prosecutors ask for it, we see in defense attorneys ask for it, we see in judges suggest it. And so clearly, like, there's a trust in the program, and you can see that play out in the court system. With a growing number of people entering the program, the city is now going to invest more money in CJA so its caseworkers aren't swamped all the time. The city has set aside an additional $36 million for the program so that the providers can hire more caseworkers and continue to take on clients. CJA right now has 75 caseworkers. They want to hire about 30 more people to deal with this surge. One of the times we went to their office, one of the case managers lit up thinking that we were one of the new people that they had hired, but no, no cigar. So more help is coming potentially with this influx of cash. And the city is also trying to put aside some of that money towards more intensive work with clients that need more intensive help that have a history of recidivism. So adding an emphasis on in-person meetings with caseworkers that are not as overwhelmed, specifically for the smaller group of folks that need the extra support. And the program is getting attention even outside of New York. Other cities and states are now experimenting with bail reform programs of their own. Illinois is ending cash bail altogether, and Los Angeles County will make almost all misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies ineligible for bail on October 1st. So bail reform writ large, though it is a fraught political issue, it's spreading from place to place. And on the ground, where these reforms are taking place, people are looking at programs like New York's supervised release program as a model for how to actually implement those changes in a successful way. Where do you think this goes from here? New York is investing in the program. Other states are starting to adopt similar measures. Do you think that this will take off, that paying to get out of jail will become a thing of the past at some point? We've seen the pendulum swing both ways. We talked about the defund the police movement. Some police departments did cut their budgets. Others left them the same. It's sort of the same with bail reform, where some cities and states are moving away from bail. Others are reversing some of those reforms. Even New York has done so. So it's a political push and pull. But you can tell that in New York, programs like this are not going away anytime soon. The city is committing millions more to it in the budget. And some of the data and the human stories from people from the program might shed some light on how it's working on the ground without getting into some of the political realities that might become challenges down the line. 
Sarah, Fola, thanks so much for taking the time to share your reporting. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Virgolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Rebecca Shasson is our producer. Our associate producer is Sam Gabauer. The editor of this episode is Caitlin Kenny. Raphael Amsili is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.